TED Audio Collective. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Are you driving your car or doing laundry right now? Podcasts go best when they're bundled with another activity. Like Progressive home and auto policies, they're best when they're bundled too. Having these two policies together makes insurance easier and could help you save. Customers who save by switching their home and car insurance to Progressive save nearly $800 on average. Quote a home and car bundle today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $793 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2021 and May 2022. Potential savings will vary. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. This is the 10th anniversary of the podcast, 10 years of designers and other creative types talking about what they do, how they got to be who they are, and what they're thinking about. On this podcast, Debbie Millman talks with Michael Beirut about why he thinks graphic design is so cool. It all goes back to high school and designing the poster for the school play. There are other people who are acting in the play. That's one way to go, I suppose, but doing the poster for the play, my God. Here's Debbie Millman. Michael Beirut has a new book out. It's a monograph, a design manual, and a manifesto. And it's all wrapped up in the very short title, How To. But the subtitle is a bit more explicit. How To use graphic design to sell things, explain things, make things look better, make people laugh, make people cry, and every once in a while, change the world. Let me explain why this book is a big deal. As a partner at Pentagram, Michael Beirut has done some of the most celebrated design work of his generation. For clients as diverse as Harley-Davidson, the Brooklyn Academy of Music, the Atlantic Monthly, and the New York Jets. How To showcases dozens of his projects over the years and along the way dispenses wisdom, philosophy, and insights that will keep this book on the shelves of designers and artists for years to come. He joins me in New York City at the School of Visual Arts, where there's currently an exhibit up featuring his work at the SVA Galleries. Michael, welcome back to Design Matters. Happy to be here, Debbie. I've had the honor of interviewing you several times, both here on the podcast in my very first season 10 years ago, as well as several live events. First, a question seeking an update. You outline in one of my most memorable interviews ever your obsession with laundry. So I'm wondering how that's going. <laughs> um I have to admit, my obsession with laundry, or, or, or specifically doing and folding laundry, is really not as 
fulfilled as it once was. I used to have three children in the house, so I was uh, doing the laundry for five people, including my lovely wife Dorothy and myself and uh, Elizabeth, Martha, and Drew. But there's something about the restoration of order, the kind of maniacal sorting and kind of doing it all exactly the same way. I will say that since we had that interview, I moved to a new house that has like a very nice little washer-dryer setup. So uh, I, I have no idea outside of uh, maybe a designer's natural tendency to kind of get things organized and to sort of take big piles of dirty things and make them clean. Uh, I can't account for what this obsession is. I, uh, my wife, Dorothy, will tell you I've never or at least in, it's been decades, literally decades, since I've cooked a meal in our house. Well, you don't like the mess. I don't like the mess. Well, I, I don't mind the mess of cooking. What really I find disturbing is the mess of eating, actually. And the idea of taking all this trouble to prepare a beautiful dish, put it out in front of people, and then just see it decimated. Why people are talking about you know, the football game or you know, what's happening in their lives, hardly paying attention to the food at all, or saying, mm, this is good. You know? And then at the end of it, within seconds seemingly, certainly within minutes, it's all just a mess, you know? And then when you wash the dishes, they stay washed for hours and hours and hours. Days until, even. Days even, yeah. If you, if you, so I guess if you could somehow, you know, just simply have these dishes and never eat any food on them, that would be like a perfect thing for me. I'm just kidding. You worked for Massimo Vignelli for 10 years before starting your now 25-year stint at Pentagram. Stephen Heller asked you what was one of the most important things you learned there, and you stated... Probably the most interesting thing I learned is that a lot of the things about design that tend to get designers really interested aren't that important. So can you elaborate what kind of things are you referring to as things that we think are maybe interesting or important and aren't either? I think as a designer... When you're educated, you, you sort of start at the bottom. You sort of – or at least I started at the bottom. I started with just mastering a craft, a craft that involves distinguishing between very similar-looking typefaces, resolving the white space in a layout, kind of carefully selecting colors that kind of will work well in different situations, taking the curve of a shape and just making it exactly so. All these things that have to do with shapes and colors and typefaces and stuff like that. For some time, I sort of thought that that was really the highest form of activity that a graphic designer could engage in. And indeed, when I worked for Massimo, he demanded attention to that kind of detail. But what made his work successful, I think, had less to do with all that stuff, which simply enabled that success. I mean, he really was just a great editor and a great storyteller visually and just kind of could come up with like the the overall idea of how something should be presented. Like, you know, if you're designing a book, let's say, my tendency as a young designer would have been just to fret over coming up with some novel way of handling the page numbers, you know? You know, it's been done. Putting them at the bottom of the page, that's been done. Maybe I'll put them at the center or on the on the edge of the page or the top of the page or something just to kind of like, you know, blaze new trails in page number location. Massimo understood that if someone's going through a book, they just want to read the words and look at the pictures. And how can you sequence those pictures? How can you vary their scale? How can you make the layout seem both surprising and inevitable? And those are all decisions that are about taste and intuition. Their execution requires 
a really keen sense of craftsmanship. But the craftsmanship alone is almost meaningless. And so I think a lot of the things that Massimo was associated with in his lifetime, like, you know, the famous diktat that only five typefaces would be used, I came to sort of agree with, but for another reason. I think that he really thought that those five typefaces were the best typefaces, that Helvetica, Garamond number 3, Century, Futura, and... Uh, whatever the grab bag other one was. Uh, so those were like the revered kind of like Hall of Fame of typefaces. And um, I'd hear about these typefaces like, say, Saban, right? Or um, Saban, that's Saban. a beautiful face. a beautiful face. typeface. Or Perpetua, right? Absolutely. But I mean, when I look at those compared with Garamond number three, I would think, well, like, who out there really can tell the difference between Saban and Garamond number three and Saban and... Uh, Perpetua and Perpetua and Dego. Yeah. yeah, the next Venetian Roman typeface, right? <laughs> right. And so um, why not just pick Garamond number three, call it a day, and move on to the big issues, which isn't like distinguishing between these two nearly identical typefaces, but rather what do the words say? What do the pictures look like? How can oh, I put yeah. them in order? It's like that Obama's actually makes suits. Sense? Yeah, exactly. One right. less exactly decision right. you have exactly to make right. so you can concentrate on the big ones. Exactly right. I, I literally remember thinking my mom couldn't tell the difference, so why are we all killing ourselves over this now? These days, I love distinguishing between those typefaces. You know, I just love it. You know, you sort of come out on the other side in a way. For a long time, I thought, okay, I'm going to kind of focus on the bigger, progressively bigger issues. And then after you sort of feel you have a handle on them, then all of a sudden the difference between Garamon and Saban starts to look interesting again, mysteriously enough. Last week, an article about you was published in Wired, wherein you stated that you don't believe in creativity. What I don't believe is the myth of the creative artist. Or at least I, I personally cannot embody that myth. What's uh, the myth? The myth is that um, people who are quote-unquote creative are possessed by some irresistible and inexhaustible source of self-expression and that their quest, quite rightly, is finding patrons who will indulge that um, compulsion to be expressive, right? And I know designers who are like that, you know, who think, I just, you know, I have to create and I just need to find outlets for my creativity. I remember realizing at a really early age that even though I was really, really good at art, I was like, I was, I was a famous sixth grade artist. You know, people all knew I was like, the best artist in the school. It kept you from being beat up several times. Yeah, I mean, being beat up and gave me all this status. You know, I, I could do this thing that no one else could do. It wasn't as good as hot wiring a car uh, or uh, being able to like jigger a lock and break into a store, which probably would have been even cooler. But it was sort of this, uh, you know, being able to draw. Kept out of jail. Kept out of jail. <laughs> being able to draw realistically actually uh, had some status uh, in my childhood. And I really made sure that people knew I could do it as quickly as possible. Drawing was sort of soothing for me in a way, but it wasn't like I had to do it because I had all these ideas that had to get put on paper. You know, my idea was I'm going to draw something extremely realistic, show it to you. You're going to be impressed and think better of me. You know, if you're a girl, you might sort of think I'm cuter than I actually was. Uh, if you're a guy, you'd be less inclined to punch me in my very punchable face. If you're a teacher, you give me a slightly better grade because I illustrated my book report on the Titanic with a really detailed big ballpoint rendering of the Titanic sinking in the middle of the Atlantic. And so, so it was all about using art to kind of achieve another end. And then I kind of learned that that had a name, which was, you know, design or specifically for me graphic design and so 
when I do graphic design, I sort of save the creativity for when it's absolutely needed in a way, you know? Instead of just kind of like being like sort of like every single thing has to be completely new and start from scratch, I'll sort of say, okay, let's take everything we know about this situation. What do we know it has to be? It has these limitations. It has these conventions it has to uh, respect and adhere to. And that somehow, when you sort of like square the whole thing away, it'll sort of like isolate the area where you're forced almost by necessity to come up with something brand new. And then you can just kind of deliver that exactly right there. And I think it's a little bit more potent that way. Were you bullied? Were you bullied yeah, as a kid? I was, but I was sort of so impervious to it that I think um, I, didn't, I didn't realize till long after the fact that, um, that in fact I was uh, bullied a little bit. I was very bulliable. I was sort of asking for it in a way. In what way? Oh, you know, I was I was I was like smart and smart assed and verbal and pimply and chubby and nerdy and just all this kind of unsavory kind of you know, I was like the I was like the kid in the horror movie who you know something bad is gonna happen. I don't know. <laughs> sort of like, you know, just kinda of like So what changed? What changed and you went from being this kid in the horror movie that ends up getting sliced and diced oh, to being honestly, Michael I mean, Beirut, the king know, of New York. This is this is we're moving away from design matters now and getting personal, as you like to do, I know, Debbie. But um on February twentieth, nineteen seventy four, uh, I fell in love with a girl in my class in high school, Dorothy, and we started dating and almost the first thing she said is what do you like about those shoes? And she's talking about my shoes. And I said, I don't know. Uh, they're shoes. They look like shoes. She said, well, you got to get rid of them. They're like bad. And that's the first time I'd ever heard the idea that there could be like good shoes or bad shoes. She, and like she says, you know, I think she might have said like no one likes those shoes. <laughs> so, my eyebrows just shot up to the ceiling. I swear to God, we went, we went to a store the next day to buy like decent shoes. And uh, she really reformed me and made me respectable, I think. Then also the confidence of knowing at least this one girl liked me, um, for sure, kind of gave me the strength to uh, reform in all the other ways that were necessary. So, so 1974. Yeah. So it's been yeah, 41 years. years. Yeah. Then we got married in 1980. So High we've school sweetheart. First and only years. girl you've ever kissed. First and only girl I've ever kissed, yeah. What do you attribute the success of your marriage to? That's a long time to be married. Um, when I met her in high school, she wasn't like a cute, giggly girl. She was like really straightforward. She would like say something like, well, you know. Change those shoes, Change Michael. those shoes, yeah. <laughs> and if you're someone who kind of is self-conscious and kind of like worried that like, you know, you don't know what people think of you, finding someone who will actually tell you right out what they think of you, starting with I love you and then – let's fix those shoes, you know, uh, is actually like just the most reassuring gift you can get from someone. And um, since then, we've kind of been really, I think, honest with each other. We communicate pretty well. Dorothy has that capacity to get really mad at me without making me into a bad person. I'm just, and I'm just mad because you did that. I still love you, you know, which is a great um, thing to have in a life partner. My grandmother used to say when she got mad at me that she didn't like me right now, but she still loved me. Yeah, exactly. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I've always remembered that. Do you ever fight with her? I mean, you said oh, yeah, that she yeah, gets yeah, mad yeah, at you, yeah. but so how do you, how do you resolve fights when you're in a marriage for forty one years? Um, one person generally um, is the uh, jerk and asks for forgiveness, and that's basically always me. So it's fairly simple. I sort of Dorothy is just kind of impervious and just sort of like is like I don't know, you know. I mean, I could tell you stories, and I've I've paid money to tell 
people those stories. <laughs> I'll <laughs> listen for free, Michael. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. As will the world on this podcast. But um, no, she's just she's a wonderful person. I'm barely worthy of her, and uh, I made that clear to all three of our kids, and uh, I try to make it clear to her every day. And I think we just somehow um, connected with each other, and we were one of those instances where the two people who were fated to connect in that way did. And so lucky us. Lucky Dorothy. Yeah. I want to talk about two pivotal growing up moments since we're in that sort of how did Michael become Michael mode. And you share them both in your book and in some of the talks that I've heard. But I think they're so wonderful. I'd love for you to share them with our listeners. Uh, The first is when you're about five or six years old, you're in the car with your father on a Saturday on the way to get a haircut. And I love that you remember that specific detail. You stopped at a light and your dad pointed at a forklift truck parked in a nearby lot. Tell us what happens next. He said, oh, look, isn't that clever? And I said, what? There's a forklift truck like next to us. And he said, well, look at the way they wrote the name of the truck. And the name of the truck was Clark, uh, C-L-A-R-K. And I said, okay, what? And he said, well, look at how the L is like lifting up the A. And indeed, the logo for Clark Trucks, the L kind of slides under the left-hand leg of the A and kind of lifts it up. He says, that's what the truck does. And I remember thinking – Oh my God! My God! <laughs> wow! Like, how did you know that? I mean, is that are there more of these? I mean, like, I started looking around frantically, like at every single sign I could see, every every word in public. You know, are people taking the time to kind of like build in these little moments of joy and pleasure and surprise? I just was so happy that someone had done that. And and why would they do it? What was the point? I had no idea there was something called a logo. I had no idea there was something called a a commercial artist or graphic designer. I had no idea that there was any process that led up to that moment, but I was just thunderstruck by it. And I have a sneaking suspicion, Michael, that you still feel that way about graphic design, which is what makes you such an incredible spokesperson for the craft and the discipline of graphic design. What is it about graphic design that you find so utterly, endlessly fascinating? I thought about this, like, you know, for a long time. And only very recently have I come to realize that I um, – that in a way I fundamentally disagree with my old boss, Massimo Vignelli. Massimo used to say his book called Design is One. And he used to think that all design disciplines were as one. If you can design one thing, you can design anything from a spoon to a city. Um, I think graphic design is special. And the reason I think graphic design is special is because it – participates in the world of communication, the way we exist as civilized people, as citizens living together depends on our ability to communicate ideas and needs and demands and resistance and all these things to each other. And um, we do it through words. And so I can speak to you right now as I am, or I can write something and hand it to you. I can write something and mail it to you or email it to you or transmit it to you in some other way. Or you or I could figure out some way to communicate with people en masse, people we've never met. And the more pressure is put on that communication, the more that it requires the intervention of someone who does this thing called graphic design. You know, someone just wanted to say, I want people to see this forklift truck and know it came from my company, Clark. Then someone, God bless him, said, hey, I got an idea. Maybe he didn't even say I got an idea. Maybe he said, you know, just to amuse himself, he said, oh, you know, it'd be cute and did that thing with the L and the A, right? Not having any idea that it would set, it would change my life seeing that logo, basically. Do they know this, by the way? Have no, you ever I, the, gone the, there? The designer and... has never uh, raised his hand or her hand and stepped forward and say, you know, God, I hope they me. do. It could be a podcast series in and of Wouldn't itself. Wouldn't that be amazing? Yeah, the mystery exactly. of the yeah, creator. Exactly. <laughs> but, uh, but I think um, 
the other design disciplines play a, a role in culture, certainly, but they're not really right there kind of escorting ideas from place to place, you know, so intimately as I think graphic design does. The other moment in your childhood that I'd like to talk about is your first mass-produced design. The poster for your high school play, Wait Until Dark. The poster is a black and white illustration you stippled onto a piece of cardboard with black pen at your kitchen table in suburban Cleveland. You recall how showing up at school a few days later after you finished the poster and seeing it hanging everywhere was a bit of an epiphany for you, a bit of a, a cosmic sort of shift. In what way? Why did this have this effect on you? Um, when I was um, a kid and it became evident that I had, like, you know, art talent, quote-unquote, my mom and dad, God bless them, signed me up for Saturday morning art classes at the Cleveland Museum of Art, which has one of the greatest collections in the United States and among the best in the world. Beautiful paintings that are just amazing. And I remember really admiring those paintings, and also feeling a bit sorry for them, you know. Um, Why? They were just lonely? trapped. Yeah, they were lonely. They were trapped in this museum. I got to go look at them. Sometimes I'd be the only person there looking at them. Other people would be, like, looking at other things. And I'd be lonely standing in front of uh, of, of some of my, like, Turner's Burning the Houses of Parliament, which is one of my favorite paintings there, still is. It's like, who visits them? They're, like, they're like in a hospital. or in, like, That's what I a, feel about the planets. Yeah, exactly. The planets. I mean— it's just lonely, cold, lonely yeah. paintings in a museum. Dark, cold. Uh, meanwhile, um, my poster gets printed. Not just it wasn't like mimeographed off. It was silk screened, and um, you know, I walked into that school and like I was in my own mind king of the high school. I mean, more people would see those posters than would see the play, and anyone that saw the play would see it because I had kind of personally recommended it to them with this poster. So I just felt this, and my, the poster was unsigned, and it actually wasn't the kind of thing that people admired necessarily as uh, as like really good artwork. It wasn't meaning it wasn't like a painstaking realistic drawing of something that was hard to draw. Hey kid, did you trace that? It was a question I got all the time. It was it's, it was like really much more abstract and kind of like expressionistic. Yet there it was. There were like dozens of them. I, I still have there's one of them in the exhibition at SVA. I uh, saw. The sole remaining copy. Although uh, my Facebook friends from high school claim that some of them have saved their own copies of that poster wow. and are kind of acting as if uh, you know it might be worth something. But you you <laughs> you felt more excited about seeing your poster on the wall of the school than you felt seeing your artwork in an exhibit. Yeah, exactly. You know, I mean, I had done things that were like in display cases in the hallway along with other kind of pieces of art. But for one thing, and also it, those things were just there. Oh, look, you know, you could look at them. Oh, that's nice. But this was like asking you to do something. Plus. It meant that, like, um, I could get waved down front to the reserve seats at the play because I was sort of affiliated now with the drama department. Uh, so it made you feel important. Made me feel important, yeah. Made me feel like I was, like, you know, there are other people who are acting in the play, you know. But that's, like, that's one way to go, I suppose. But doing the poster <laughs> for the play, my God, you know. You went to high school and college in Ohio. Yet when you first visited New York City, the only souvenir you brought back was the Vignelli subway map. I read that the map had a talismanic quality to you. Did you know at that point that you wanted to work for Massimo? No, I, and I, I'm guessing I didn't even realize at that point that a man named Massimo Vignelli or a firm called Unimark had had anything to do with uh, making that map. But you knew that, that the map. map was designed. I knew that I understood the map was designed. I also understood the map was sort of like 
beautiful and mysterious. And we're talking about the abandoned, uh, notoriously disavowed Vignelli. Uh, the one where things map. necessarily aren't really where they are. Right, they are where they are, but the whole thing is just a beautiful geometric diagram that actually uh, accurately describes the relationships of all the stops. Simply uh, doesn't do that in relation to the geographic layout of New York City above the ground. So it's good <laughs> for getting around on the subway, not so great for walking around in Central Park. Then um, it also seemed to have this sort of... Um, mind-blowing quality of sophistication that just seemed completely new to me. And again, how did you get this souvenir? You simply walked down into the subways in 1974, mind you. Imagine that. That's a big year for you. Yeah, it was a big year. It was Vignelli a very big Dorothy. year. Oh, totally big year. Dorothy Vignelli. That, and, uh, yeah, absolutely. And so you walk <laughs> down to the subway and, and you say, can I have a map? They give you a map. You know, it's free. Again, it's like you go to MoMA and look at uh, Monet's water lilies if you wanted or a Picasso, uh, you know. They demo Avignon or something. You know, you can look at that. But then you leave and there it is. But meanwhile, everyone in town is walking around with this subway map. You know, that's power. You know, everyone's, you know, riding the subway, getting lost, getting frustrated, admiring for its beauty. So I took it back with me and, uh, you know, pinned it up on the wall of my bedroom like it was a pinup poster or something. You know, it was like a Farrah Fawcett Majors or something, right? (laughs) You confess in your book that, in retrospect, it wasn't a surprise that Massimo Vignelli loved your portfolio when he ended up first seeing it. Uh, You had sans-serif typefaces on every page with modular grids underpinning every layout. How did you get the interview with Massimo in the first place? How did you know to go try to get a job with Massimo? I had an um, internship at WGBH Television in Boston. There was then a brilliant uh, design director there named Chris Pullman, who has since retired. I love Chris Pullman. He's one among many really influential mentors that I've had. He had a fantastic staff, and it was my first exposure to people who loved being, were unashamedly designers, loved being designers, made jokes about typefaces, treated it all like it was the most fun thing in the world, working at a public television station at the height of, like, Masterpiece Theater. Theater and uh, Julia Child and Zoom, if you care about that. Come on and Zoom, 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 Zoom. Zoom. Exactly, yeah. And, and they used to have, I used to have, like steal Zoom stationery, the, the Zoom press releases and write home to Dorothy on it. so great. Um, to be working there was like really just a great, great experience. And I worked there one summer and a guy I worked for, Tom Samita, had been at Yale with another guy named Peter Laundy, and he told me that Peter had gotten this job uh, as a graphic designer for Massimo Vignelli. Then I made a trip towards the end of that stint down to visit some friends in New York City. And he said, oh, you should look up Peter while you're there. So ostensibly, I was dropping off my portfolio for Peter Laundy to look at. And he took it in to show it to Massimo. And Massimo must have been in a cheerful mood because he overreacted to it, in my opinion, and decided <laughs> that it was just the best thing he'd seen. You Were you know, hired instantly? I, I it was, Even then, this was like years ago, and uh, people think it's rough now, but even then I sort of was I, – I just kind of wanted to come in and see uh, – I thought I'd come in and show my portfolio to this guy, Peter Laundy. He was too busy. He said, just drop it off. So I dropped it off overnight, went in the next day to pick it up, and I, st- I can remember this like – like as if it was as if it happened yesterday I went in to pick it up and I was like dressed like wearing these jeans and hiking boots and a f- untucked flannel shirt and I looked scrudgy I was just there to pick up my portfolio and get on my way and uh, I went into this like you know all black room with a single 
white cube in it behind which is seated this really beautiful woman behind her was the subway map that i had had on on my bedroom wall except it was a t-shirt made out of the subway map framed and kind of put at a jaunty angle it's like very kind of meta right um you know this beautiful receptionist said you know may i help you and i said yeah i'm michael barut and i'm here for my or something i blubbered something out of my and she said you just say you're michael barut and i said yeah just a minute please just wait there. And like, you know, I was like, oh shit, what did I do? You know? So I'm sitting there and there was like silence, silence, silence. And then <laughs> comes Massimo and he says, so this is the kid. This kid, oh, your, your portfolio is fantastic. Best one I've seen in a long time. So he's pumping my hand really ferociously. So he said, like, let me show you the office. It's great. You're fantastic. He says, um, he says now what? You graduate already? You graduate? You're looking for a job? You want a job right now? And I said, no. Uh, what? I said, no. I, um, I, um, the whole year left to go to my school. And then he said, no, well, well, after you graduate, come right here, you get a job. Okay, it's fantastic. So he said, he's that kid with a great portfolio. He's like, and it all happened like, I don't 15 seconds, I was like wheeled through the office. Massimo kind of spun me around. And the, the next thing I know, I was standing outside those doors with my portfolio thinking, you know, what just happened? And then I sort of thought, well, that seemed like a job offer, I guess. And But then I went I went back to Ohio and um, I, I called Dorothy. And I said, I think Massimo really liked me. And Dorothy was like, which one is Massimo again? So you know, <laughs> she, was, she was studying. Uh, she's getting her MBA at that point. So she really didn't know. Doesn't that sound like a wonderful dream come true? It's by spectacular. The way? It's just a dream come true. I've been so lucky in my life. So it's lucky in my life. spectacular, Yeah, Michael. but it, it really happened that way. Pumping and, your hand. Pumping my hand. And, but Massimo was prone to those kind of overreactions. One time, I loved when he overreacted yeah, like that. I mean, I remember one time... It was like maybe the day after Halloween and someone for some reason had one of those big kind of like jumbo bags of M&M's and um, poured them in a big bowl at the front desk. And Massimo came and said, These are fan- this is the most perfect – this is fantastic. Look how great they are. The colors are just great. And he started like he's eating them and he's saying, you know, we should, this, is, this should be our trademark. We should have M&M's here at the front desk all the time, all the time. <laughs> and like um, – and then, then, he, then he sort of like put some more in his mouth and kind of like hopped off. And then like I remember the receptionist kind of looked at me and said, should we have – M&M's like every day? And I said, no, I don't, I don't think so. <laughs> See if he asked for them tomorrow. And they were gone. He never mentioned them again. So I was sort of like, it was M&M's that day. It was me the other day. But so I was happy that it was me, period. But um, so uh, I finished my senior year of college and I wrote some, there's no email, no internet. I, you know, I can't even quite reconstruct how I understood who he was without the internet? I mean, what would, what, how would you have known back in the 70s? But I guess I did. I mean, there were magazines, stories, and books and things. And, I, and God knows I know how to, like, look up things in the library. So that must have had something to do with it. But I swear to God, it was just, was like a, it was, it was just a miracle and just a beautiful story, just like um, me and Dorothy, right? Right. Um, so um, I wrote a letter and I said, you know, you're Mr. Vignelli. Um, you may or not remember me, um, you know. So you know. So, I, and then I got back a letter from uh, from Peter Laundy. I think I might have sent it to Peter Laundy. I was too afraid to write to Massimo. And Peter said, you know, um, we don't have any openings right now, but just kind of like uh, stay tuned. We're hoping something. And then um, a designer who's working there named Sandro Fanchini uh, left, and I inherited his desk, and he became eventually design director of Crate and Barrel, actually. And he had replaced Lorraine Wild, who's uh, an amazing Lorraine Wild book designer and uh, teacher and um, uh, a brilliant person, too. So I inherited this Rolodex that I still have that somewhere in it has some cards filled up by Lorraine and then, then by Sandra. Do you still have it? I, yeah, I have it on my desk, yeah, in, in, at Pentagram. That's fantastic. Yeah, it's as big as a tractor tire. It's really huge, actually. 
After you started working from Osmo, you and Dorothy rented an apartment that was only three blocks away from the office, and you had a key to the office. You would work another shift after you after Dorothy went to sleep. So you, you your second shift began at 10 p.m. You went home at 3 a.m., and you did this for four years. Yeah, just about, yeah. Just for four fun. Four years. Just for fun. Just yeah. for fun. Yeah. Dorothy would go to sleep from 10 until 3. First of all, how did you get on with such little sleep? I remember really resenting the idea that people had to sleep. I thought it was a real flaw in God's plan if you sort of think that we're all products of a divine creator. Like what is this thing where you're sort of like pissing away one-third to a half of your time on earth just by being unconscious in a bed? Also think if you didn't have to sleep, you might not even really need a house. You just have a locker somewhere. But I mean if you don't need a bedroom – you know, you could eat in restaurants all all the time and just kind of have your stuff parked somewhere and maybe you just have some place you can sit and read or something. You wouldn't really need that much space. I just thought if you get rid of sleeping, everything would be okay. And yet, I worked in Manhattan all through the 80s. I never even saw cocaine, considering how disdainful I was about sleeping. I never really took any drugs at all. I just was naturally someone who uh, liked to stay up late. Did Layla and Massimo know you were working from I, 10 until 3? I guess so. I don't know. I don't, I don't remember. You know, once he had a key, I guess it was clear he'd come and go when he wanted. The office wasn't alarmed, as I recall. They may have just thought I was extraordinarily productive somehow, where I just seemed to be able to work twice as fast as anyone. I didn't, I didn't hide it, but I just was able to, you know, I'd get, I thought, why should I? I may as well just do this now when it's nice and quiet, you know. Do you think anybody's doing that now at Pentagram, anybody that works for you? I like to hire people who just love to work. I I try to fix it so that when I'm working with one of my designers on a project that they feel ownership with it along with me, sometimes more than me. So they sort of see it as worth the time they're going to invest in it. And I know that they do that. I know they do. I mean, I've been surprised again and again by some idle suggestion I'll make. And then the next time I see it, it's like, do you want to see that thing we talked about? And I'm like, well, last night. And I said, well, you know. I got something. And then what they have is like the whole thing completely done and ready to go. And it's just jaw-dropping. And they're smart. They learned what I learned, which is that you can either sit quietly and wait for instructions or you can kind of like take some initiative, take a guess, you know, guess wrong a few times. So you just get, do it over, you know, from nine to five. If you guess right, you start to look like smart, you know. You admit in your book that you don't have a style, something that you refer to as the Michael Beirut thing. Is that intentional? No, no, no. I'm too um, equivocating. I just I could never make up my mind and just sort of say I'm going to do things like this all the time, or or even that this is the the best way things should be done. And I admire people who actually do have a a really distinctive, identifiable handwriting. I think I think that that's actually a um, you know it's closer to um, to being an artist in a way. You know, on the other hand, I swear to God. As much as I love art and music and all these other things, you know, when I think about people who I really admire, I mean, I got I went through a phase where I was just so enraptured by the story of Holland Dozier Holland, the three person songwriting team at Motown Records. It was such a lesson for me when I kind of heard their story. Uh, uh, Lamont Dozier, Eddie Holland, and Brian Holland uh, were salaried employees at Motown Records working for Barry Gordy. Um, they were really, really good and serious jazz musicians. And on the weekends and after hours, they would go to clubs and play the music that they loved, which was really good jazz music. By day, to make a buck, they had this job doing what some people would have called hack work for 
uh, this commercial enterprise called Motown Records, and they were really they were they were good at that. Although my suspicion was they didn't feel that that was like the best use of their talents. And one of the things they were good at was kind of coming up with a different kind of song for each one of the performers. And so, uh, uh, working with uh, Barry Gordon and the uh, Barry Gordon and the other people in the Motown staff, they would figure out a way to write a certain kind of song for the Supremes, a slightly different kind of song for uh, Martha Reeves and the Vandellas, a, a different kind of song for the Four Tops. And each one of them has sort of had their kind of characteristic sort of basic premise, you know, happy party girls, um, heartbreakers, um, paranoid guys who just thought the world was against them. And while they were waiting and hoping and praying they could make some money, go do the real stuff they really cared about, you know, the legacy they left us was baby, where'd our love go? Dancing in the Streets, you know, just like like dozens and dozens of number one songs that if you heard any one of them, it would conjure up a whole world for you, a world of beauty and excitement and nostalgia that's inspired people for years just listening to this stuff. And these are people just doing cheap commercial music. The ability to figure out a way to reconcile the need to fulfill a frankly commercial end, but somehow figure out a way to also leave behind a thing of beauty that could inspire someone, like a forklift truck logo guy. God help me, is sort of like the thing that I kind of live for. It seems as if you need parameters when you work. Full freedom doesn't really work for you, and you'd rather have limitations and uncaring clients, as you've said, and no budget, rather than freedom and a receptive audience and an empty table and a blank check. (laughs) Why is that? I mean, to me, I think graphic design actually has... Like, it's a game, but it needs rules to be fun. And so when I'm doing design work a lot of times, I mean, indeed, my least favorite kind of assignment is one where someone says, do whatever you want. Sometimes I'll just turn those down. It just seems – if it seems too easy, I just kind of can't do it. I mean, I'd rather have someone come to me and say, look, you know, this is really desperate. You know, this can't be changed. It has to fit in here. It has to be done by Friday and we only have 20 bucks. You know, you know, I don't cook, but it's sort of like Ready, Set, Cook where they say here's a turn up a jar of peanut butter, some uh, strawberry jelly and a leg of lamb. Make something, you know, and I think that's like really fun. <laughs> also, well, and if it doesn't taste good, what are you going to say? What the hell? You know, there's well, peanut butter and a leg of lamb. Exactly. Exactly. The chapters in your book are related as problem solvers, how to invent a town that was always there, how to raise a billion dollars, how to behave in church and so forth. What made you decide to organize the book in this way? And what is the backstory behind the make people cry part of the title? Um, The crying part is actually there's been several occasions where I've actually done design that um, sort of made me cry. Like what? Like what? The very last case history I have in the book, which is the one that I learned a really important lesson from, which is a uh, long-running project I had done with the Robin Hood Foundation here in New York where they were rehabbing public school libraries. And originally I was just supposed to do a logo for them, and I did the logo, and I thought I was done. And then one of the architects for one of these school libraries, all in elementary schools, all in economically challenged neighborhoods, schools that were – you know, really needed all the help they can get. And then one of the architects uh, asked us whether we could do a mural above the shelves just to kind of go in the space between the uppermost shelf that the elementary school kids could reach and the ceiling, which is usually much higher. And so um, that first time around, I commissioned Dorothy to take pictures of the kids because she was uh, taking photography classes at the International Center for Photography. So she took a bunch of portraits of these kids. We arrayed them around the top. And then the librarians liked that so much that we then uh, did that in about 
20 libraries after that, enlisting all sorts oh, of amazing yeah. Myra artists. Kalman, Myra Kalman, Stefan Sagmeister, Christoph Niemann. Extraordinary. Yeah, um, Peter Arkel, great, great designers and great artists and great illustrators uh, to work with us on that. And um, as happens, I had people in the office who had done all the, you know, the working drawings for these things and had never actually seen any of them because they're way off in sometimes remote parts of the Bronx or Brooklyn. Or, and so I said, why don't we just kind of take, take a day off, rent a van, and just kind of like uh, visit as many of these libraries as we can get to. And um, it was really great. We visited these libraries. It was so great to see them filled with kids. Most importantly, sort of how the librarians themselves kind of were able to take possession of like their – their stores, you know, that they really felt they'd been giving a special stage upon which to perform. And they owed it to the kids to actually kind of like take this gift and make it into something. And that was like really, really amazing to see. And and never more amazing than the very last stop we had. It was uh, winter, so it got dark early, night was falling, and uh, the librarian was closing up in this one library. And she said, let me show you how I turn out the lights. And I was like, okay. And uh, she turned them off in sequence, and she had one last light on. She said, this is the last light I turn out. It's the light that was the light on the faces of the kids above the shelves. She said, I like to remind myself why I come to work every day. So that makes me cry yeah, even I'd right now. I'd be weeping, you know, yeah. It's nice to reach these kids. But the important thing was to make these librarians feel that they were valued so that they could then, you know, they were the amplifying effect, right? They were the ones who, the kids would come and go, but the librarians were the ones who would actually change those lives of those kids by feeling passionate about what they were doing. And this inadvertent thing, can you help fill the space between the shelf and the ceiling, you know, with, okay, how about this? We did it, and I never sat and thought, you know, yeah, but let's remember to change the lives of the librarians. I, you know, that, that never occurred to me. And they actually have this encounter and have this reminder that, you know, work that we do can be seen by people and experienced by people and occasionally change their lives. To me, it's a really thrilling thing, and it happens when you least expect it. Michael, thank you so much for being on Design Matters. Happy, it's a pleasure as usual. Thank you. You can hear Michael Beirut's take on the world of design on The Observatory, a podcast that he co-hosts with Jessica Helfand for Design Observer. Michael Beirut's new book is How To, and it's published by Harper Design. This year, we're celebrating the 10th anniversary of Design Matters. I'd like to thank you for listening. And remember, we can talk about making a difference, we can make a difference, or we could do both. I'm Debbie Millman, and I look forward to talking with you again soon. Design Matters with Debbie Millman is produced by Curtis Fox Productions with technical assistance by Rainey Ortica. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com. You can subscribe to this free podcast in the iTunes store. You're growing a business, and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate, no coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.